0: Well, as you can see, I lost my job as announcement guy. (laughs) They didn't even tell me. They just went and hired somebody else. (laughs) I don't blame them. I would have fired me too. I'm not good at it. (laughs) Uh, Praise the Lord. Hey, um, we're going to receive our morning tithing offering. And uh, if our ushers will get in place, I appreciate it. And thank you for giving. You know, um, I, I was—I I don't look at the finances as often as I should. Uh, years ago, I never looked at them. I never—I I just never looked at them. Now, I've tried to be a little more responsible and and actually look at what the income and expenses are. You know, I figure the lights are on; it's all good, right? <laughs> but uh, but I decided to look because you know this has been a very tumultuous c- c- three years, really, and. In the world and in the church and we know uh, we're hearing reports you can't count on people tithing anymore it's not going to happen they're not going to do it anymore get the shift and and uh, you know I, I went and checked this week and I was so pleased And I want to thank you I just want to thank you for giving because we uh, c- considering everything that's happened you would you would think that there would be a big drop-off we, we were only thirty three thousand five hundred dollars less Less this summer than last summer in the giving, and that's really good. You should be you should give, your, give the Lord a hand for that. And, uh, and so I'm grateful to you for continue to give. I do believe I do believe in it. I do believe that, uh, and what I believe in the idea of giving living. I really do. And we can we can argue about whether tithing is New Testament or Old Testament. I, I don't really want to argue about it. Uh, you, you can't now give God. If you can give God 20%, do that. You know, <laughs> you can't now give God. So thank you for giving. God, I do believe God blesses giving. I believe God blesses us with money or that which money cannot buy. Amen? amen? Thank you, Jesus, for the generosity of your people. Thank you for your blessings and your generosity through us so we can in turn be generous to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, uh, I, I just got, I, I don't want to give up my announcement job completely because I got a couple more uh, announcements. Um, very excited. In fact, we, we weren't going to even announce it today, but two people heard about it. You know, when, when something's so good, it leaks out. That's just incredible. So two people came to me. So we're so excited about the all church Bible study. And so um, normally when you come in September, we try to be ready to go. But we decided to wait and have vision month in October. So maybe questions you, you have about what's this church about? Why are they here? What's our reason for being? We're going to do it in October. Vision month's going to be October. We decided let's let everybody get back in, from their, in, into their routine, their fall routine. So you're going to learn more about what we're about, what we're trying to do, and what our plans are for the next year. But one thing, one thing we're going to do is in November... Uh, First Wednesday night in November, we're going to begin a study of the book of Ephesians. I believe Ephesians is the most important book in the New Testament. I really do. I think if you only had the book of Ephesians, you could have everything you needed to know about God's grace, about the plan of salvation, and about God's plan for a unified community of Jews and Gentiles. And so I'm really excited. Not only that, there's going to be a Portuguese language group that's also going to be meeting at the same time. And we really love our Portuguese and our Brazilian members and Portuguese speaking members. And um, if the Lord willing, if you be listening, we're going to try to have a fellowship of those of you that are a Portuguese language folks just to prepare you for it in the middle of October, but be uh, s- stay posted for that. So put that on your schedule every Wednesday night. We're going to start at 715. That'll give you time if you have if you're dropping off your youth down at Forum, you can drop them off, and then you can be here, and then we'll let you out in time to go back. And we're going to have a sign-up. We'd appreciate your sign-up, because we want to have, have some food for you and some beverages and stuff like that. So we'll have a sign-up, and we're going to have a great time. It's going to be awesome. Amen? Yeah, let's see, now, now you see why they don't want me to do announcements, because I, I talk too long. <clears throat> okay, a man is flying in a hot air balloon and he soon realizes that he's completely lost. So he starts reducing height and suddenly spots a man down below. He lowers the balloon a little further and shouts, excuse me, sir, I was wondering if you can tell me where I am, I seem to be lost. The guy looks up and says, "Ah, oh, it's easy, you're in a hot air balloon, you're about 25 feet above this field. And the guy in the balloon says, you must work in IT. Uh, I'm guessing you work as a programmer, says the balloonist. He says, the guy says, I do. And yes, I am, replies the man, looking surprised. How do you know? How you guess? Well, he said, everything you've told me is technically correct, but it's of no actual use to anyone. <laughs> and the programmer smiled and says, Ah, you must be the CEO <laughs> in a business somewhere. <laughs> yes, I am. How could you you know that? Well, that's easy, said the programmer. You don't know where you are, where you're going, but you expect me to be able to help. (laughs) And you're in the same position you were in before you met me, but now it's my fault. (laughs) That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just think we need to laugh, and I, I enjoy laughing a lot. Okay, we're in our second sermon on influence, the ministry of influence. I believe it's the most important ministry that any of us have. Sometimes people think the most important thing you can do is have authority and authority matters. authority's good, can be good, can be toxic, it can be good. authority is necessary. power is necessary you don't You don't want to be in a situation where nobody's in charge. You've probably been in those situations before maybe it's maybe it's your house, your home <laughs> where you live. <laughs> So, uh, but uh, there's no question that the most powerful, the greatest power is not, not authority, but the greatest power is influence. So, um, today I'm going to talk about what I call the friendliness factor, where influence begins. Would you like to know that there's a biblical way that you can have more of God's favor Be more beneficial to everyone around you without having to pray anymore or read your Bible anymore or get up one second earlier or volunteer for more things down at the church. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. You should do all those things. You should pray more. You should read your Bible more. You probably should volunteer more. But there is something that the Scripture leads us to do that we often miss that doesn't require more prayer more bible study more volunteering or any of that now that that's not like i said it's not to say you shouldn't do those things but, but this thing that I'm going to talk about to you today, and these things I'm going to talk about, not only are you biologically wired so that the practice will lower your stress and positively impact your physical health, it will, it will be the bridge to influencing people around you in a very positive way. And it will help you to win, a, live, I meant to say, a win-win life. See, some people want to win a, have a win-lose life, and some people uh, are addicted to a lose-win life. But God, His Word, it's always win win with God. And God sent Jesus to the cross, and that was a win win for God because He wanted us back. So it was a win for us and it was a win for Him. He wanted His lost children back, He wanted His family back. So He did not, He was not a loser on the cross, but it was a win win situation. So um, I call this. There's a list over in Galatians called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. That list is really kind of what the sermon's about, but I'm not going to talk about it much. I call it low-hanging fruit. It's not... You know, I think one thing the Lord is really, really helped me to see when I preached that sermon a few weeks ago, giving God a little bit more. I thought that was something that God really put in my heart because I felt like the Lord said to me, Phil, you got to be really careful about all the finger wagging that you do. And more, 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 more. you got to do more. Well, I know, yes, we all need to do more. And we all need to be repenting. And we need to up our game. I know all of that. But you know what? You look around this room. There's a lot of tired people in this room. A lot of people that are really exhausted. A lot of you, a lot of you are, are spending, you're spending, some of you are spending two hours a day in a car besides you're going to work. You're spending two hours a day in your car going to and from work and you're getting home at 7, 7.30 at night and your lives are filled with stress. And so God has a word for us. Yes, sometimes God has a hard word for us. Sometimes God has a word for us that's very demanding, very hard. I can't deny that. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So God also has a light word for you. God also has an easy word for you. Something that just by a tiny adjustment could make a huge difference in your life. Just by a tiny adjustment could make a huge adjustment in your relationships. John Gottman you know, talks in his book... Uh, Seven principles for uh, to make marriage work. You know, you know what he says. He said one of the one of the greatest signs that a marriage is uh, is going south is eye rolling. When one spouse rolls their eyes at the other spouse. Now, maybe you want to just try it and see if you can roll your eyes right now, and then see if you cannot roll your eyes. I bet you could. I bet you can control that. I bet that's in your power. I mean, you know, some people some people say they need to go to anger management classes and stuff like that. But I notice they, they usually handle their anger in the grocery store. They have to beat their wife at home, but at the store they handle their anger. They handle their work, their anger at the office. They can handle their anger. They just don't want to bad enough. So what I'm preaching today is 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 about just changing your desire a bit. Let's get into it. Here's the low-hanging fruit. I'm gonna read three verses of four verses of scripture. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Ephesians 4:32. Proverbs 11:25. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. First John 4:7. Dear friends, let us love one another. And then the key verse for today is Proverbs 18:1. Unfriendly people care only about themselves. They lash out at common sense. It's just a nice way of saying unfriendly people are stupid. (laughs) Unfriendly means to prioritize oneself. Friendly means to prioritize others. Now, friendship, the problem with the word friendly, I almost didn't put it in the title, because friendship is a deeper word. It sounds like friendship, but friendliness is not friendship. Now friendship's important, but you need to keep the two terms separate. You cannot be everybody's friend. You cannot handle everyone at a friendship level. You you can have a lot of casual friends, but you cannot handle... but you can only handle a certain amount. Some people have a bigger capacity than others to handle close friendships. And you can't handle intimate friendships with very many people. So we're not talking about friendship. That's an important sermon for another day. Friendship is such an important and deep virtue, we easily miss it being approachable, congenial, welcoming, and friendly is a family of virtues that is so entirely biblical and is implied in our text is wisdom. It makes sense. To put it bluntly, I said a minute ago, being friendly is stupid or dumb. To put it philosophically, let's move quickly from the base to the philosophical. To put it, put it philosophically, to be unfriendly is to be unjust. Did you ever think of that? I never thought of that till so I was studying, and I found out that St. Thomas Aquinas taught that he used the word affability, and I'll I'll give you the definition in a minute. He taught that affability was contained in the virtue of justice. Affability means easy to speak to, approachable, amiable, and good-natured. So uh, I don't know, Chris, come here. You can you can help me out. This is not. Not going to blow your mind illustration, but, it, but it's an illustration. So come here. Now, the Bible tells me, look at the audience. The Bible tells me that Chris is made in the image of God. No matter if he's a good guy or a bad person or a good person, no matter if I, I do find him likable. But if I didn't, I, he's still made in the image of God. Now, now here's, here's Chris standing here, and here's me coming into the church on Sunday morning. What did I just do? I just ignored the image of God. I just ignored God's masterpiece. I just ignored God's creativity and did not even make eye contact with God's creativity. Now God might call me to go shovel his snow. God might call me to go, well, no I couldn't help you fix your car, that would be a curse. Uh, (laughs) God might call me to take dinner to them. And he may not, but I know he definitely calls me to treat him with amiability, affability, congeniality. God calls me, well, I'm going to talk later about what the Bible says about greeting the brothers with a holy kiss. I I won't do that in front of everyone. Thank you, Pastor. (laughs) We'll have a hug. Here's what you do to the image of God. (laughs) That's what you do to the image of God. Thank you. Uh, now, now, I want to give you an, a biblical example of this, and I want to show you how powerful that is. How powerful th- this 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 just this idea of being of noticing people and being kind to people and being congenial, congenial and affable and friendly. How powerful it is, and I'm gonna I want to uh, I want to tell you how it relates to the greatest influence in history. And I bet you that study the Bible, you know, besides Jesus, who's the greatest influence in history? Huh? St. Paul, Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul, no question about it. Apostle Paul, the greatest influence, not, not only in Christianity, but in the world. No one rivals Apostle Paul in influence on the world, Western civilization in particular. Paul had three major missionary journeys throughout Asia and the Roman Empire which time it's known that he either planted or at least influenced 12 churches now imagine that, that was, there, there, was, there, there was no um, very poor mobility in days you either walked you rode a you rode a donkey or you boarded a ship there was no cars no airplanes and he got around and either planted or was a part of 12 Churches, Paul's theological insights on the doctrine of grace, justification by faith, the body of Christ, the second coming of Christ, progressive sanctification, and so much more have shaped the essential theologies of the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and the modern evangelical church. Furthermore, furthermore Paul played the critical role in Christianity going from being a small, insignificant sect to a global religion, And still, there are more Christians than any other religion in the world today. But Paul's potential would have been derailed had it not been for a man named Barnabas. And a simple act of courtesy from a man named Barnabas. Let me read it to you. When he, Paul, now Paul had been going around killing Christians, getting them put in jail, and so it wasn't like uh, when he visited the church, they did not send him a welcome letter or a welcome email. They did, they, they did not invite him to Next Steps class when he, when, he, when he visited the local Christian church. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, and brought him to the apostles. And told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord. And the Lord had spoken to him. And how Damascus. Now how did Barnabas know? Because he had. I know it's, a, it's, it's such a deep word. And you would never thought of it before. I, I, I'm so glad I'm here to tell you how he learned. Because some of you have never experienced it. He had a conversation. He Talk to him, <laughs> and you'd learn incredible things when you talk to people. And so he talked to him, and and uh, how he—I don't know where I am here in the text. Let me jump in somewhere. He told him how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him. How in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Too often, you see, I think you get the point already. Paul's influence to the church in his launching of missionary journeys likely would never have happened had Barnabas not done this simple act of going over and saying, listen, guys, come here, Saul. Shake hands with James, the head of the church. He's a good guy, okay? Okay. And he walked away. Barnabas never wrote one single epistle in the New Testament. Barnabas didn't change the world, but Barnabas was responsible for connecting the man with the church who did change the world. Now, too often, Leo Bascaglia said this one time many years ago. He too often we underestimate the power of a touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment. Are the smallest act of caring, all of which have the potential to turn a life around. I told you, I'm asking you to do something today, God's asking you to do something. You you could go, you could actually be transformed in the context of a 35-minute sermon. That's how easy this is. And, and and so convenient. We have fellowship today after church. <laughs> so now, what we're talking about here is norms, not exceptions. There are exceptions. There are times, you know how I walked by this image of the body of Christ a while ago, the image of God, I mean, when I walked by Him. Well, there are times you, you have to do that. You got, you, there's an emergency you're going to deal with. There's something going on. You have to walk right by somebody and not speak to them. That's Okay. The time. But we're talking about norms here, not exceptions. But if my norm is unfriendly, such as when it's necessary to be unfriendly sometimes, that's one thing. But then if, I'm, if my norm is normal, and it's what I do normally, then I'm actually reducing the effectiveness of the... If I'm normally rude is what I meant to say, if I get this out properly. If I'm, then I reduce the effectiveness of occasional redemptive rudeness. Because sometimes you have to be redemptively rude. Sometimes you have to tell somebody off. And everybody needs the potential to do that. Sometimes you have to ignore somebody. You, need, you have the, need the potential to do that. But if you act annoyed and angry all the time, people stop seeing it as their problem, and they see it as yours, and they're correct. So, let's talk about norms. I want to talk about three norms. And they fall in the category of a kind and joyful look, a kind and joyful word, and a kind and joyful touch. In Acts 6, an early church deacon named Stephen had a facial expression that was so attractive people couldn't look away. The Bible says, as they all sat on the high council, as all those who sat in the high council looked at Stephen, they found they couldn't take their eyes off him. His face was like the face of an angel. Wow. Imagine that I can reflect the presence of God. I can reflect heaven Itself, and I can reflect heavenly beings with the way my face looks somebody said if you're happy notify your face <laughs> I tell you if you ever you know they say uh, they say if looks could kill how many of you have had that look that that look that could kill, right? We communicate a lot with how we look at people. We communicate that we're happy to see them or that we do not care. We communicate that we're welcoming them or we communicate that we're rejecting them. We communicate that they matter to us. We communicate that they don't matter to us. You may say, well, I don't mean that's not my heart. Well, let me tell you something. The Bible has a very interesting little verse that many people have used to say that the exterior doesn't matter, but actually it means the exterior matters a lot. And that little verse is referring to Saul and David, and it says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Well, that's true, but man doesn't look on your heart. All other humans can see is your outward appearance. Jesus communicated empathy, understood the tenderness, uh, understanding and tenderness to his audience. When he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion. Imagine the dirty looks and suspicious looks that Paul was getting. Imagine, imagine the the rejecting looks that Paul was getting. Uh, uh, imagine what he was, and then. What walks into Paul's life is a smiling Barnabas, dropping by Paul's place. Barnabas' name meant the son of encouragement. And by the way, did you know that smiling is not only good for everyone else, it's really good for you? You know that? Smiling lowers your stress, releases all kinds of beneficial hormones and chemicals into your body, and studies have shown it actually lengthens your life. Once the smiling muscles in your face contract, there's what, what they call a positive feedback loop that now goes back to the brain and reinforces a feeling of joy. Uh, to put it more succinctly, smiling stimulates our, our brain's reward mechanism in a way, according to one researcher I read after, in a way that even chocolate doesn't do In fact, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a famous yearbook study where women who smiled in their yearbook picture were studied and their lives were followed. And it was found that they had happier lives, happier marriages, and had fewer setbacks in life. In another famous baseball card study, players who smiled in their baseball card picture lived an average of seven years longer. Her face looking around. <laughs> you know, you know what I, you know what I'm thinking. You know, we're we're always we, we do it in staff meetings, and every pastor does it. And, and you might as well know a little bit how the sausage is made, right? We sit around, we talk about how can we get more people to come to church, how can we get more people to accept Christ, how can we, how can we, how can we do this better? We're always trying to think of some program we always think of some new program, and, and, then, and then we realize that we've got to have the same people that are already busy to, to, to volunteer to help with this new program because you, you don't have the budget to go hire another five people to do this great program you just invented, and the poor people that are you that are sitting at home, you don't know that we've just created a job description for you that we expect you to do, and we will feel that you're disobedient if you don't do it, Right? What if we just changed our facial expressions in the room? Maybe we don't need another program. Maybe we just need to be more excited when we meet. Maybe we just need to be happier. Maybe we just need to love one another stronger and better and more powerfully when we do get together. And maybe that would explode the church and people would get saved and come to Jesus and we'd have revival. Number two, we're talking about norms. Make your norm kind and encouraging words. Proverb, you know, yeah, I know. Sometimes you have to rebuke somebody. Sometimes you have to disagree with somebody. Sometimes you have to challenge somebody. Of course, we understand that. Balance is a beautiful thing. But balance, let me tell you something about balance. Balance does not mean equal amounts of. Because negative words are heavier than positive words. They weigh more. Compliments don't weigh as much as criticisms. So you have to be weighted on the side of encouragement and compliments and praise. So it takes more compliments and praise and congeniality and affability and kindness. It takes more of that to balance out the negativity that is necessary in life. Again, John Gottman does a beautiful job of explaining the difference between a complaint and a criticism. And you ought to read it. You, you, all, of, all of you married people ought to read his book. And you ought to read You ought to learn the difference between a complaint and a criticism. And I'm not going to get into it right now. But it's an amazing insight into the difference between the two things. But whether it's complaint or criticism, a relationship can only handle so much. I, I, heard, I heard a guy tell this one time. He said he, he went over to this... Uh, to visit this man and his wife and the wife is always you got to pray for my husband he will get saved he will accept Jesus and so she goes over to his house when he's, she get, he she gets him over there and I've been in this situation before with, when somebody expected me to conquer the resistance of their loved one and it seldom works if, if the person closest to them cannot win them there's a little chance that the pastors are going to go win them to Jesus right So the pastor goes over there, and the wife is just going on in front of him. And I've been here, too. I've been there, too. The wife's going in front of him about her husband needs to get saved and accept Jesus. And then she goes out of the room to get coffee or whatever, snacks for everybody. And he whispers to the pastor, I'm already a Christian. (laughs) But if she finds out she expects so much out of me now, if she finds that I'm a Christian, I will never, ever live up to her expectations. (laughs) <laughs> Proverbs sixteen twenty four tells us kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul, and healthy for the body. You say, "I really, I really want to bless. I want to minister to people." Pastor, you you got to pray. I got to, I I I've got to have a ministry. Well, you could just have a ministry by going around and saying kind words to people. He said. I want the ministry of healing well there there it is healthy for the body by just saying kind words can can you handle that is that too heavy is that too too difficult for that maybe maybe so I'm sorry positive words somebody said I I forget who said this I found it somewhere and I thought it was so good I wrote it down positive words are difficult to remember negative words are difficult to forget boy that's the truth isn't it Abraham Lincoln, when he was assassinated, you can go to the Smithsonian and there are articles that were in his coat pocket that are on display at the Smithsonian. One of them was a worn out newspaper clipping which celebrated his accomplishments as president. And the headline was, Abe Lincoln is one of the greatest statesmen of all time. Imagine that. You're Abraham Lincoln. You have... You have, li- you have reunited the country and you've liberated the slaves and you needed to carry around in your pocket somebody who said something nice about you. That's incredible. Words have power. They're either encouraged or, or discouraged. There's no middle ground. Brain functions at its best and quality of life at its peak when we're processing positive rather than negative words. This is a biological fact. Now, we don't need it to be a biological fact. If the Bible gives it to us, it's wisdom and we can accept it. But I always like to go do this research and and just give the science side of it sometimes. And uh, there was an article I ran across called The Most Dangerous Word in the World. And it's by a researcher named Andrew Newberg and Mark Waldman, they're medical doctors. And here's what he said, or they said in the article. If I were to put you into an MRI scanner, uh, a huge donut-shaped magnet that can take a video of the neural changes happening in your brain and flash the word NO in all caps, for less than one second, you would see a sudden release of dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters. By the way, don't you just love how the Word of God, we don't even need to know all that stuff. We just need to know the Word of God is so smart and so wise and so good. Just do what it says and you don't even have to do all that research. Because, because the Word of God is just incredible. I, don't you love the Word of God? I love the Bible. I just love it. But I'll go ahead. We'll humor these uh, medical people and scientists and let them know that they got it right again. They said, uh, these chemicals, or these stress-producing chemicals, these chemicals immediately interrupt the normal functioning of your brain, impairing logic, reason, language processing, and communication. Positive words such as peace and love alter the expression of genes, strengthening areas in the frontal lobes and promoting the brain's cognitive function. They propel the motivational centers of your brain into action. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you were doing. I, I thought of that when I ran across that verse. I said, I want to make sure and tell the people of Bethany Community Church that you're already doing good on this score. You're doing good. So this sermon is meant to encourage you. And a couple of cranks that are out there, I'm going to try to convert you. <laughs> Number three. Make your norm a kind and compassionate touch. James, Cephas, and John, the Bible says in Galatians 2.9, those esteemed as pillars gave me, Paul and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. Notice there was... The Bible is a very touchy-feely book, man. When you, you read the Bible, there's a lot of touching that goes on in Scripture. When we... And Caitlin said, when we touch one another with a kind and compassionate heart, it creates a sacred moment. I mean, biblical tr- culture, as I said, I alluded to, was a high-touch culture. Romans 16, 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. All contain directives to greet one another with a ritual holy kiss, which is a part of culture in that die. Now, I understand this morning that our audience Many of you have been the victims of inappropriate touching. So understandably, you might recoil at this point. But let me remind you that Americans and Western Europeans are particularly low-touch cultures, right? They did this one study where they went into like a coffee shop or something in Puerto Rico. And they examined the couples that were sitting there. They monitored how, much, how many times they touched each other. While they were having you know drinks or food or whatever and it was like 150 times during a meal right and 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 then they 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 did the same study in Gainesville Florida and the average was twice (laughs) two times that Americans touched each other when they ate together and they went to London and it was zero I think if they went to New England. It would probably be zero. <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> so I understand. So my point is this: Yes, I understand that some of you have been the victims of of abusive, violent, assault-type of touch, or uh, of the violating touch of sexual molestation. But our low-touch culture has not made us less abusive with our touch I don't know if there's a correlation there maybe there is maybe they're not now one wonders if healthy ritual appropriate ritual touch I don't believe we should start kissing each other on the cheek around here I don't believe we should do that. that's not culturally acceptable people just would think we're weird if they didn't think you're weird in Middle Eastern culture even today when you go to Middle Eastern culture you will see men meet on the street and kiss each other on the cheek that is part of what they do we we would, if we were writing the Bible, we would say, greet one another with a holy fist bump. That's what we would say in American culture. <laughs> greet one another. But, but you know, there's something, even a handshake, there's something warm about that. Because you're extending yourself. The body language of that, you're opening up. You're making yourself vulnerable. You, it demonstrates vulnerability when you take this posture toward another person, as opposed to this. Right? Right? Um, Hugh Corey was our district superintendent at the Assemblies of God for many years. And he was the one that, Sherry and I came into this area under his ministry. And he was really a wonderful, wonderful man. His son is the president of Biola University today. And Hugh was a touchy-feely guy. I would go to his office and he would grab my, whoops, wow. (laughs) He would grab my face like this. Oh, oh, Phil, you're so awesome. <laughs> and he he had such wisdom. I remember when I was trying to get a church. I was I wanted to pastor a pastor church. I was all eager, and Sherry and I were eager to go. And he says to me, "When it fell, felt well, If you don't have patience to wait on a church, you won't have patience to pastor after you get it." <laughs> he was just, and and he ended up on. On staff at Park Street Church, or anywhere Park Street Church in Boston, he ended up on staff there. And uh, one day, I went down to have lunch with him, and we sat down in a restaurant in the in that area. And he puts his hand on my hand for like the entire lunch. And I didn't care what anybody thought; I didn't care. I did not care because it was Brother Corey, and it. It, I, I mean, it actually produces oxytocin. Oxytocin gets released when someone touches your skin. Some of you live your lives and nobody ever touches you. You have skin hunger. And I know, I know what we've done to touch in, in America, Western civilization, it's all sexual touch. It all touch is about sexual. But I'm telling you, God wired you. God wired you To need someone to care about you enough to touch you. No one should be untouchable. No one in this room should be untouchable. Yesterday, a man was in my office, and I'll leave leave him anonymous, but he came to my office, and I I wasn't in in a bad way or like I needed, felt like I needed a bunch of encouragement or anything. But he goes, Pastor, I just need to give you a hug. And he walks around to my desk and just, Holds me for about three, four seconds. Man, there's something powerful about that. There's something powerful about that. And I understand that everybody doesn't want that, and, and you're fine to say, hey, no, no hugging. I don't want to hug. But I'm telling you, we live in a very lonely world. We live in a very lonely world. And I believe the people that are going to make a difference are the people who know how to love in all the dimensions of love as well as holding on to standards of truth and integrity and all of that so please don't go around and be uh, give unwanted holy hugs but at least <laughs> at least extend a holy handshake or perhaps like I said earlier a holy fist bump now I could regale you with more psychological research to prove this point but it's a fact that low touch cultures have more depression more stress More stress related diseases, and in general, worse mental health. It's a fact. There's a reason. The scripture says, Lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, there's a type of person in the world who doesn't want love. There really is. There's a type of person in the world who doesn't want you to love them because that's not their game. They just, in life, they see everything as win lose. And they're a person who just wants to win and everything is competition and they play the power game. If you are self-aware enough to know that you prefer dominance over intimacy, let me entreat you to come back from the brink. You better start being nice to people because you are outnumbered. There's one of you and there's 8 billion people in the world. So you better start being nice to people. People who play the power game through their lives invariably end up alone. That's why Jesus chose to cross over the throne. Let that sink in. Jesus chose to cross over the throne because he knew that to choose to play the power game and not play the love game was a losing proposition. He did not simply do it because He loved us, though He did it because He loved us. He also did it because it was smart. And because He did it, He won. He defeated the powers of darkness. He defeated the powers of hell. He defeated the power of death. And now He sets at the right hand of, of the throne of God. And, and, and let me finish before you clap. I want you to clap, but let me finish. And you cannot visit His grave. Amen? Now let me close with this, beware of adhering to the common belief, this is really important these days, that God will not instruct us to do what we cannot immediately feel emotionally. Beware of adhering to that common belief now that you cannot possibly do. What you do not feel like emotionally doing. This this uh, this belief leads to excusing oneself from commands such as loving one another tenderly, based on the assumption that we cannot conjure uh, we cannot conjure up feelings of affection instantaneously, and all of that. The truth is. That God does have a right to command that we feel anything we ought to feel. Now, now let that sink in for a minute. God has a right to command that you feel what He wants you to feel. You are not emotionally independent from God. For instance, for instance, God commands you to feel joy in the Lord. Do you know that? He commands you. He said. He said, "Rejoice in the Lord always." And you know what the word "rejoice" means? It means to brighten up. If we ought to, the Bible says that we ought to feel the sorrow of empathy when He commands, "Weep with those who weep." He doesn't say, "If you feel like it." Oh, you feel like weeping with them? No. Work up a cry. <laughs> Work it up. Make yourself sad. <laughs> If we ought to feel gratitude, he doesn't say, "Do you feel do you feel grateful?" He says in Colossians three fifteen, "Be thankful." He doesn't say, "Well, if you don't feel remorseful for your sin, I guess it's fine." No, he says, "Be miserable and mourn and weep" in James chapter four verse nine over your sinful condition. He doesn't say, "Oh, you're not afraid of sin? No problem." You don't, have to, you don't have to be afraid of sin if you don't feel like it. No. He says, fear the one who after he has killed your body has the power to cast you into hell. So, let's put ourselves under God's authority in this very simple matter of being. What word do you want to use? Friendly, affable, kind, sweet, encouraging, let me close with, i want going to give you a P.S. on Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. A nice man brought many people to the Lord. And so B.C.C., a room full of nice people will win the world. Not all the world but we'll win men more of the world by being winsome, caring, kind, extending a hand, extending a kind word. And you know the good news is we can do this. Amen.